Hi there. Welcome to the Health Analytic Insights Podcast. This podcast is all about creating a community of like-minded individuals who are passionate about the field of health informatics. I hope to share information and advice in topics such as health analytics, digital health, biomedical engineering, and data visualization in healthcare. And in exchange, I would love to hear from you, dear listener, about your experience and interest in this field. You can drop me a line at healthanalyticinsights at gmail.com. And this email, along with any references discussed during this podcast, will be listed in the show notes below. If this resonates with you, don't forget to follow and subscribe to this podcast, as I'll be releasing new episodes bi-weekly. Thank you, Roxana, so much for being on the Health Analytic Insights podcast. And before we dive into our really amazing questions, I just wanted to have you introduce yourself to my audience and maybe tell us what are you looking forward to most in 2021? Hi, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Roxana. I I was going to say I'm a cognitive science PhD candidate, but I'm not. I actually graduated this spring. So I guess I'm a cognitive scientist. That's how I, do, I would define myself. Uh, that's what I was in school, and that's pretty much the title of my current position, cognitive data specialist. And I currently work at a healthcare consultancy called Macadamia Technologies. I've been there for almost two years now. And what are you looking forward to most in 2021? That's a, that's a funny question. So until now, I've had lots and lots of New Year's resolutions. And this year, I tried to make them. But it's the first time I, I don't have both a job and full-time school and part-time jobs. And um, I kind of just decided to enjoy both my family and my work. And there's a nice, I guess, I'm lucky enough in the sense that a lot of my hobbies and interests overlap with my work. So I don't have the whole like, oh, I need to achieve work-life balance. It's more like I'm just going to kind of continue with enjoying both for now. No, no crazy goals. Nice. What are some hobbies that you're into? Let's see. So in terms of topics, I'm really passionate about things like behavior change and habit formation, which... I could read about that forever and <laughs> nice. data and qualitative and quantitative. And I'm a bit of a, yeah. We're all nerds here. <laughs> Perfect yeah. audience for that. <laughs> Definitely. And I enjoy being outside a lot, all kinds of outside. Uh, recently, there's a professor at Carleton who does some research around something called biophilia. So it's basically love of nature. I, I've always loved being outside, particularly in the summer, but now I guess maybe it's because of the pandemic. I'm enjoying it more and more, like every chance I get. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've definitely been hiking more. I'm probably going to do some skating later in the year when it gets a bit colder. So really just taking advantage of all the nature and the beauty that we have in Canada that's, you know, open to us. Yeah. And then just the traditional um, cards, board games, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Nice. Uh, so I was wondering if you can provide us a bit about your academic background and how you navigated into this role as a, a cognitive scientist and a UX researcher. 
Sure. Um, though, just like like many other people, both in Cogsci and UX, I don't have a straightforward path to my current position. So I actually started in chemistry. And for as long as I remember, I've been passionate about chemistry. That's something I shared with my mom, I guess. But within chemistry, I was working on something called photochemical oscillators. And maybe the photo part gives it away but my experiments were light sensitive. So I would start my research at like 6 p.m., 7 p.m., pretty much when everyone else had left the building because I couldn't have someone turn on the lights or change, like turn on another piece of equipment to affect the light intensity in the room in any way. Mm. So um, it got a bit lonely. I loved what I was doing, but after a while I started missing, you know, just the human component and some kind of interaction and collaboration. Mm -hmm. So that led me to take electives in other fields, like languages and linguistics. I really Mm -hmm. like languages. Mm -hmm. I guess I really, really loved it because I ended up pursuing a second simultaneous degree in modern languages with the Spanish concentration. With chemistry as well, too. Oh, wow. So I took a few courses throughout summer, sometimes took six courses. Mm -hmm. So because they were both full degrees, like honors degrees. Mm -hmm. So by the end of my fifth year, I was a chemist by night and designing curriculums and teaching English to newcomers by day. (laughs) And I loved it. I really, really loved it. But then at the end of the combination made me really happy. But then I kind of, as you can imagine, as I started looking for masters, there really is no clear path that follows from chemistry and Spanish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the next step? So I kept looking. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew I love the rigorosity from that I experienced in the lab, but the application and the interactions and how I felt in, in the classroom. So I kept reading descriptions of programs across Canada, and then I came across cognitive science, and it really resonated with me. And I've been in Cogsci ever since. I've done my master's, my PhD, and now my job is cognitive specialist. That's really cool. I, I definitely relate with that. Like, I've always been interested in healthcare, but I never really wanted to become a doctor because I've always be, really been interested in how can I solve healthcare problems, and then. Mirroring the two between technology and healthcare is how I really got interested into biomedical engineering. And I feel like that's like a lot of people. A lot of people don't really have one specific interest. They have a bunch of different interests and being able to find a way to kind of mirror them and like combine them, I think is, you know, that's a dream, right? So I'm, I'm glad that you're able to find cognitive scientists. That's really cool. Exactly. And I think the truth is there wasn't even, I mean, early on, my the university I was at didn't have Cogsci. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have had that exposure earlier on. High schools, I remember going to career fairs. My math, my grades were good, and I excelled at um, chemistry conferences. So the guidance counselor kind of told me, doctor, chemist, this, these kinds of degrees. Like there wasn't that guidance early on. And I think that's changing as universities are starting their recruitment earlier and earlier and going up to or down to grade eight. Um, I think 
the new generation, I guess, uh, gets exposure to these more interdisciplinary fields a lot earlier than I had the chance. Yeah, I really hope so, because even in my you know, high school and things like that, it was very, very, prof- I guess, old school careers. And there was no talk about, you know, health informatics, cognitive scientists, UX design, all these things that we know today, like those things I've never heard of until I, you know, kind of graduated university. So I really hope they're, they're starting to kind of give um, young people that um, education about all these different careers that exist and that are thriving, because I think there's a lot of people who are, they don't fit the tech stereotype of just a programmer sitting in his basement you know there's a lot of people who are who want to use their creativity they might be passionate about the arts like I play violin and I like to make earrings so I don't really fit the stereotype engineer role but I think there's a lot of people who could be exposed to these degrees and could have a lot of uh, benefit and can add a lot to the field if they're really just you know exposed to all these different careers in tech that um, they could definitely thrive in. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, I completely agree. And at the end of the day, like if we look at the systems, the environments we we live in and the problems we're trying to solve, there's no field that can, one field that can solve them. Mm -hmm. It's this collaboration and interdisciplinary teams that are, are really a must. So for someone who's completely new to the field of cognitive research and UX design, can you just give people, you know, some use cases a general overview of what you do, what it is? Yeah, so cognitive science kind of just as a discipline, I guess, okay, so in my thought, UX research is almost the applied equivalent of cognitive science. So I'm not sure if everyone agrees, but for me, what brought me to cognitive science in the first place was the curiosity to expand my knowledge across fields and bring those fields together. CogSide investigates human cognition, which is really complex. And like we said earlier, just like other problems we're experiencing, there's no one field that can uncover and explain it all. So CogSide as a field, even within academia, acknowledges that humans are complex and it brings together various disciplines. So neuroscience, psychology, linguistics, philosophy, and they all work together to better understand how the human mind works. UX research, on the other hand, is kind of taking the application of these variety of investigative methods and using it in context. So what I do now is use all these research methods that I've learned in my PhD and master's to inform the creation of products and solutions that best reflect users' needs, motivations, desires, And at the end of the day, provide them with as flawless as possible of an experience. I guess in a nutshell, it's kind of in the context of a PhD, I was doing research with the overarching goal of, I want to understand human cognition. Like I didn't have a more tangible one. It was just contributing to this vast knowledge. Whereas now I do have that goal at the back of my mind. But the everyday goal is more tangible. So I may investigate barriers associated with a medical condition like diabetes, for example. Mm -hmm. And instead of my immediate focus being publication, which I may still want to do, but my immediate goal now is to use these insights, let's say, to inform a digital health app that will improve the lives of individuals living with diabetes. So it's just, I think the scale and the 
tangibility of the goal changes a bit, mm-hmm. but it's still looking at a problem or a research question from various lenses. That's very interesting. And like, what advice would you give to somebody who, you know, might want to go with a PhD track versus you working at industry now? What are, what like advice would you give somebody who might want to do, you know, straight through academia versus someone who might want to go from their undergrad to industry? That's a really good question. And I don't have a perfect answer, but if you do go the PhD way, I think it's really important to acknowledge early on, do I want to stay in academia or do I want the job in industry? And to be honest with your supervisor about that, because if you don't have a supervisor who's on board with you wanting a job as opposed to staying in academia, Mm -hmm. neither you nor the supervisor would be happy. So in my case, I was very honest and I've worked a lot throughout my PhD and my supervisor fully supported me. And I've always tried to bridge academia and in this industry, particularly healthcare and education. I've always been passionate about the two. So um, cognitive science has uh, something called methodology rotations, where basically the idea is that you work in a different lab and you pick up new skills in a discipline that's not your core research. So what I've done, and I really encourage this for everyone who's looking for a job rather than a career in academia, is to reach out outside of the university. So each department has lots of adjunct professors, Mm -hmm. and typically those adjunct professors have a full-time job somewhere, whether it's NRC, the Royal General Hospital, and that's what I've done. So I've done methodology rotations and independent courses at the general hospital. I did my job well, well, my course well, which translated into a summer job, publications, and it kind of one thing led to another. So then I always had that continuous bridge with the outside world, I guess. Mm -hmm. I definitely see that. If you look at you, you can get kind of sucked into academia. It can be kind of like more of like a closed off space. So if you don't make those connections with people outside of in an industry you can definitely get lost in that I found that for me one of the best things I did was participate in a lot of the poster sessions that I had during my master's because it was a great way for me to network with people who worked in the government that's how I got one of my interviews being able to network with someone and it also shows that you've created a project on your own you've gone through the steps you have the ability to do something from start to finish by yourself it shows a lot of initiative on your own part so I think it's a great way if you want to get a job in industry to showcase that you can take on a project by yourself so when you get those entry-level jobs as we were talking about early you really need to be able to show that you can be adaptable and you can learn a lot of skills quite quickly so I think showcasing your work through these uh, poster presentations is also a good way to network with other people in industry. Exactly. And I think another part of it is that um, if you're purely in academia, I mean, in a PhD, you have four to five years, right? For your research question. But that's not how the world works. So I think it's really important to, to get those applied opportunities outside of academia because the, the outside of academia world has has constraints, you know, has time constraints, has budget constraints, has 
if you don't have a first year course with thousands of people that sign up for your studies because they get course credit, recruitment is a lot more challenging than it is doing it within the university. So it's all of these things that, yeah, you might be an amazing researcher, but if you can't do it within the given constraints, and you're not going to know what those constraints are until until you step outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely need that co-op experience, you need that internship experience, anything to really learn about how the workplace works, even workplace politics. That's something that I had to learn my first job and you know how to show up in the workplace is very different than academia. So getting that exposure in any way that you can is is really beneficial for sure. So actually, one of the first things I used to, I, I was brought up, if being on time meant being 15 minutes early. So I've done that at work a few times, but then every time I've done that, meetings were back to back. So I interrupted someone's meeting by trying to be early or on time. So it's all these uh, small cultural or environmental things that we do need to learn that. Like, I mean, my intention was good. I was trying to be perfectly on time based on what I thought being on time means. But um, based on what what you said, just going back for a second, I think another thing is also, so there's a lot of things that we need to learn as we're transitioning from academia to industry, but there's a lot of things also that we take for granted in academia. And we think those skills are common. So the way we do ethics proposals for pretty much every study and how involved those ethics proposals are Digital health apps don't always, particularly wellness ones, like there isn't an ethics regulatory body all the time. So companies are starting their own and the, having that experience of going through that protocol and knowing what to look for, it's actually a huge advantage and a really good skill to have mm-hmm. that you don't think of putting on your resume because a PhD student basically does that for every single project you have to do. So for us, it's common sense. It's, I mean, we take that skill for granted, but it's a huge skill to have. So I think it's also kind of learning things that we take for granted, but are very valued in the industry. Absolutely. Like even, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, writing research proposals, writing grants. These are all really important skills that you can definitely translate to academia, like I just had to write like a standard operating procedure and I was able to translate the skills that I learned from my master's and all the grant writing and all the research proposals that I had to do abstracts and kind of synthesize those skills to, you know, documents that you have to write in the workplace. So that's very, very true that you, there's a lot of skills that we just take for granted that we don't really, you know, put on a resume or even think of when mm-hmm. uh, we're transitioning um, to industry for sure. Yeah, exactly. that's really good. Uh, for me, I definitely had to learn um, how to rein in the uh, free food because I'm in my master's, whenever there was like free pizza, I'd just be running, running down the first one to get the free pizza. But in, in the office, I had to calm down and realize, okay, I can't be so. Um... Yeah, I had to do that with the coffee part. I mean, oh, not coffee. because it's free coffee, just because I love coffee too um, much. One of my questions is, do you have any advice? So you're, you're, career path was very interesting, you know, going from chemistry and Spanish and then cognitive scientists. Do you have any advice to give to young people on how they can kind of explore their passions and how they can potentially 
find a way to integrate that into a potential job or a potential interest in doing a master's or, or academia? Did you do any specific programs or things external that kind of helped you to find your passions? I, I guess I kind of knew what they were and then I just followed it one by one. So I did chemistry. I knew something's missing. I took an elective. It complemented it. I enjoyed it more. I acted on it. So I guess the biggest contributor has been my curiosity to try different things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then just highlight what you know and what you have because you don't know when it's going to basically come in handy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So no, I've okay. used, yeah, like I've used things like Spanish to be a literacy counselor, but I just mm-hmm. got lucky that I knew Spanish and Spanish was, learning Spanish was one of my passions. Mm-hmm. Um I used chemistry in an EEG lab because there's a lot of overlap in how you read and deal with the data. Mm-hmm. And it's just these, there's so many applications of anything really that it's just, you need to put it out there and be very open-minded in your searches, either whether for volunteering or events or networking, but job opportunities too. I found that it's not really, the things that I like have really weird titles. Mm-hmm. Like I would never think of searching for them. So you have to just be really, really open. Um, yeah, like I don't know, recently I was looking for a friend and came across something with video gaming and coding and Vietnamese. It's like <laughs> that's such a specific combination. Mm-hmm. But I do know someone who perfectly meets that description, but it would never cross my mind to look up video games plus Vietnamese mm-hmm. for a job in Montreal. Yeah. Like, it's just being really, really open. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for myself, it was just being open to going to events outside. Like I attended something called Hacking Help, mm-hmm. which is a um, basically a hackathon where you get to interact with a variety of people in, in medicine who are developers. And basically you go and you you can build an app, um, something that can help to solve a healthcare problem. And I was able to, you know, network with a lot of people, learn about a lot of industries. And I think as, as you say, it's just about being curious. And I think it's also about being confident in your passion. If you're passionate about um, creating earrings, being passionate about language, you're passionate about, um, I don't know, soccer, like all these things are important to telling the story about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that you can use all of the all of these passions and hobbies that you have to really inform what you might want to do in the future, right? So you might not have a job title today that kind of describes what you want to do right now, but I think it's important to kind of keep on exploring your hobbies and keep on exploring things that you're creative about. And, you know, people even start their own businesses today. There's so many people who are who have the power of the internet to be able to start their own businesses. So you could even, you know, take your passions eventually and do some type of consulting. So I think there's a lot of um, opportunities for people and not being, don't pigeon yourself, I think, into one specific category. It would be my advice in terms of finding a a career that you're passionate about. I agree. I think there's a lot of value in bringing insights from your, I guess, former life or passions. One of the people I really look up to um, has a background in architecture. And every time I hear her speak, there's something that she draws from that. Recently, I 
attending an ethics presentation she gave and there's so much that she can bring in that just gives the field a completely different value and insights that someone without that specific background just mm -hmm. doesn't have. I think yeah. there's a lot of value there. I just wanted to um, touch back on, uh, we had talked a bit about apps and I was wondering if you could give us a bit of insight into why so many digital health and wellness apps uh, fail and kind of give us some perspective in terms of UX design and how that's all tied in. Yeah, I think not only this is a really good question, but it's also a very timely question. So on one hand, the COVID-19 pandemic has really accelerated the rise of digital health. And from our perspective, like you and I as users, we're more accepting of health and wellness apps. So acceptance of apps basically is higher than ever. So intuitively, you'd expect that digital health apps would also be more successful than ever, but that's not the case, right? So even just acknowledging that, I think, I think that's huge. So an example is medication adherence. Like half of the patients with chronic diseases don't take their medication as, as prescribed, which is a terrible number, right? Mm -hmm. What's even worse is that this number hasn't really changed since early 2000s, despite of the rise of digital health. Oh, wow. So something's going on. Mm -hmm. Why are things not, not improving? Well, I think the answer is really simple, but hard to fix, I guess. Um, whether something's digital or not, behavior changes really hard whether you're picking up a new habit, whether you're getting rid of an old one. Um, and sometimes you have to do both, right? Like if you think of nutrition, you incorporate some new elements, but you can't keep the Pepsi and the chips because that's not going to help. You need to get rid of a bad habit while you're embracing the new one. So doing things like this, it's really hard and time consuming, even in ideal conditions. I think there's a few considerations that if we don't take into account, they make behavior change even harder and they're ultimately responsible for the failure of digital health apps. So one of them is motivation, right? Like if you make a conscious decision to do something, let's say to walk every night, if the ultimate reason for that is personal and intimate to you, like it's dear to your heart, then we refer to that as intrinsic motivation. So if your motivation is personal, that's kind of like the best kind of motivation. But on the other hand, if someone was recently diagnosed with a medical condition and sometimes they barely have any time to process or accept the diagnosis, but they have to start treatment right away mm -hmm. because otherwise, well, there's risks and those risks are severe. In that case, they don't really have that intrinsic motivation is dictated by the disease, by the medical condition, by the physician. It doesn't matter how well intended. It doesn't matter how nice they may be. At the end of the day, it's just not the same as when the motivation is personal. Mm -hmm. So when, I mean, kids and adults are like, no one likes to be told what to do. Right. So when the motivation is externally driven, it makes behavior change, digital or not, a lot harder.
And I guess another one is barriers. So people kind of think of habit formation as just like, you know, you pick up a new habit. So there's something, a routine that you're trying to adopt. You set up an alarm or a reminder and then occasionally you reward yourself because you've accomplished it. And that's supposed to become a repetitive cycle until the habit is formed. So that's often referred to as the three R model, remind, routine, reward, which I mean, that sounds so simple, right? And it makes sense. The problem with it is that, I mean, the intention's there. So you have that, there's good intentions, but the reality is there's also lots and lots of barriers. So whether it's financial or your environment or whatever it may be, we all face different kinds of barriers. And yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that this this sounds, what, what do you think would be the best solution or one of the solutions that might be when it comes to these digital apps? Would it be like a quiz that kind of um, understands your own personal motivations? Is there some type of interface that we need to put on all of these apps to kind of integrate the, what you're talking about? What, what do you think would be a solution to these? Yeah, I think a first part is exactly what you said, whether it's a quiz or not. Like part of the onboarding process is understanding the kind of motivation. Because mm-hmm. if you have intrinsic motivation, you're going to respond to very different stimulants, I guess than someone who has extrinsic motivation. So when they're told by the physician what to do. So understanding that and having different functionalities and engagement techniques and personalization um, functionalities within the app based on the two kinds of motivations, I think that's a big thing that should be done. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is when we're talking about barriers, So I think particularly for health apps, digital health apps, we're not only talking about the regular barriers that most of us may have in common. So right now we all share the barrier that gyms are closed or you can't go jogging with your best friend or all of these. But someone with a medical condition, on top of these barriers, they also have symptoms. So if you think, for example, of a person with epilepsy, if they're trying to track uh, events or something that happens after their seizure or when they experience a seizure, that's really, really hard. Like you can't just ask someone, or I mean, you can ask them, but that's not going to be effective to ask someone to keep track of things like that after they've experienced such a difficult event. So I think one of the places where digital health apps fail is that they don't account for the user journey. Mm. And in health, it's not just the user journey, it's also the medical conditions journey. So basically onto that journey that many of us may share is the added layer of how the symptoms are changing over time, whether that medical condition is associated with things like depression or whether there's a change in someone's motor skills and the recommended recommended activities, physical activities, for example, are no longer feasible. So to kind of to tackle this, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the barriers of someone with a medical condition are far more complex than just picking up a wellness app 
when mm -hmm. you're in perfect health. Mm -hmm. And then we have to do our research with the users, but that's not enough. And I think that's where a lot of people fail because the users know where they're at in that moment in time, mm -hmm. but with a medical condition is going to, their pains and touch points are going to be unique and changing over time. So then we want to bring in their whole medical team, basically. So I think that's the only way to have an intimate understanding of the journey and their needs throughout. Once we get that, we can kind of aspire to design the right solution. Mm -hmm. And then we do research to validate because it may work now or it might have worked before COVID, but it doesn't work now. So we need to constant, then I guess that's another place where they fail. Maybe it's successful right away. It makes you happy for a week, but once it's in the wild, like you need to keep monitoring. Consideration. Exactly. After deployment to ensure you're on track. That is so interesting. I think it's, it's such a valuable research that you're doing and I just recently read an article about Lyft and Uber trying to integrate basically their apps into the electronic health records. And basically it failed. They were doing this to reduce appointment no-shows and they found that there wasn't any significant uh, decrease for these appointment no-shows because they kind of like took the approach of if we build it, then they'll come, but they didn't really do any research in the audience. They're trying to you know, target low-income individuals and they didn't do any research in the perception of how low-income individuals even view Lyft and Uber. It's so important, as you're saying, to research the audience, research who you're actually, who the patient is and how they're using the app and not just doing a snapshot of it, but continuously doing this research and understanding the, the user's journey throughout. So I definitely see how the, what you're saying definitely could be a possible solution to why we're constantly seeing you know failure in terms of these apps. No, that's really interesting. Exactly. So in this case, I mean, I think the first thing to do would have been to sit down with the users, well, mm -hmm. virtually sit down with yeah. the users and understand what are the means of transportation for them to reach their appointment. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it's not just that. Like if it's happening during COVID, then just anecdotally, sometimes low-income families have more family members in a smaller space. So maybe they're reluctant to leave the house or expose themselves because there's no there's no extra room for isolating or protecting if you live in a multi-generational household. You may want to kind of weigh the benefits. Do I want to potentially expose my 99-year-old great-grandmother or am I going to skip a, an appointment? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of new barriers, not just the means of transportation that need to kind of be captured. Actually, speaking of that, one of the, the examples we talked about is how first year students, if they do bad, oftentimes the university kind of identifies their grades and has the university has them join a course to kind of improve their academic skills. So it's just based on, let's say, first-year engineering students, they fail or don't do so well on the first midterm, and then they're put in this pass course or something to improve their grades. So the assumption is that, well, they weren't ready, or they may have had the grades in high school, but the education wasn't up to standards, 
and let's say math and physics. But that in reality, they are actually underperforming for lots and lots of other barriers. So they may be underperforming because there's a war in their home country or because they're, they've never seen a scantron and they got half of the questions wrong or used a pen or this is the first time they're away from home and it has to do with mental health. Like there's a multitude of barriers that you don't, the university has absolutely no knowledge of until they really sit down and talk to the students. Mm-hmm. If you just make an assumption, they're solving a problem, but that's not a problem. They're solving the wrong problem. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think you put the dot on the eye that you need to talk to your users mm-hmm. and see why they are or they're not doing something. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us, talk all about the world of um, cognitive scientists and UX and healthcare. And I hope that we can have a further conversation in the future. And thank you so much, Roxana. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.